Good morning, church. I have had the privilege of preaching in a couple of Sunday night services, but then you're always down there. So this morning I've moved up three steps, which is kind of a big deal. So I hope you're ready for it. There were two times this summer where uh, I was a little bit nervous when I woke up in the morning. The one was when I had to eat the squid uh, for the sports camp, and uh, this morning was another one. But I am very, very glad to be able to share with you a little bit about some things in regards to the 10th commandment, and I'm excited to be able to do that. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. Uh, This summer we've been moving through a series called The Rules for the Road, And as you can see from all these different signs, there's a lot of different guidance that we get when we're out on the road. And that's what we believe the Ten Commandments are. We believe that there are ten things that God told His people to direct them and to give them guidance as they travel through life. And so today we're going to be looking at the Tenth Commandment. And I want to show you a couple different pictures and ask you just a a question about that. See if you can recognize these different characters And then we'll read our scripture passages and and move along. So the first picture, it's a cartoon character. Wondering if anybody can recognize who that is. Yeah, good. You can say it out loud. Yeah, that's Scar. Next character, see if you can figure out. Okay, another one. Cruella. Okay, one more. This one's a little bit older. This is from Aladdin. This is Jafar. Okay, so, so far you're probably getting in your head a little bit of a picture. But what do those three characters have in common with the biblical person of King David? Now, if you're pretty intuitive and you know what the 10th commandment is, you know that it's the commandment against coveting. And those three characters, in fact, lots and lots of villains that we deal with in uh, our our stories from Disney or just uh, tales that we tell to our children, have to do with characters who covet something else that someone else has. So you have Scar who covets the kingship of his brother Mufasa and ends up going to some pretty ugly uh, lengths to get it from him. He kills him. Then you have Cruella, who covets the, the uh, coats of the puppies. And then you have Jafar, who covets the sultan's uh, leadership over the empire. And then you have King David, who unfortunately, though he had so much and was a devout follower of God, coveted another man's wife. So we may not always put those three or these characters together, but they all wanted something that someone else had, and they ended up gradually doing worse and worse things in order to get it. So I want to look at uh, the passage in Exodus 20, which is where we first see the Ten Commandments. And if you'd like to, you can turn in your pew Bible to page 60. I think that's about where we find it. It would be Exodus 20. And I'll be reading verses 1 and 2, and then I'll be reading verse 17, which is the actual 10th commandment. And then we'll be jumping a little bit forward to David's story. So it starts off saying this, And God spoke all these words. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then jumping down to verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The Israelites' desires were all over the place. They had needs inside their life that they wanted to be satisfied. And so when they didn't trust God, they began to look to other places. They started to look around and see whether or not the things that other people had would be able to satisfy. And God says, no. He says, no, enough. We're not going to have that. And instead, he directs them towards something better. Now, if you could jump with me to 2 Samuel 11, and this is where we read the story of David and Bathsheba. It should be, I think, in the Pew Bible on page 247. 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from uncleanness, and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. It's a sad story to read. This King David that you hear so much about, this man of God, the man who played the harp, the man who slayed the giant, the man who danced before the Lord with all his might, this man out on a rooftop looking around while everyone else is out at war, and he sees something, something that his desire goes out to, something that he's attracted to. Now, I don't think that desire is bad. I think that sometimes it pops up unbidden within us. And because we're human, I think that that's okay. I don't think that it's all right for us to always uh, respond in negative ways to that desire. But when it pops up, sometimes that just happens. And it's okay to admire things that are beautiful or attractive or admirable. I believe that desire is actually something that God has given to us. And I believe that desire is also something that God encourages. Philippians 4 verse 8 says that whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, those kind of things, think about them. 
And I think it would be a shame if we had churches that were filled with people who didn't have desires. I think that that's an extremely dangerous thing to have a congregation that is just blah. A congregation of people who are just bland. I think that if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you should be a person with passion, a person with desire, a person who burns in some ways. But David's problem is the fact that he has desires, but he doesn't know if God can be trusted to satisfy those. And so he sets his eyes on his neighbor's life. And this leads him into really great trouble. Because desire in and of itself is probably a neutral thing, but desire, when it gets misguided, when it goes off the path, when it is held onto for too long, has this ability to go rotten. It's like the expiration date on it was a couple of months ago, but it's still held onto. I'm a single guy. I know what it's like to have something held onto for too long that ends up going rotten. My fridge is full of that kind of thing. But when desire goes rotten, it becomes coveting. And coveting is selfishly having to have what someone else has. Selfishly having to have what someone else has. Now, coveting by itself is, is maybe not that bad of a thing. It just happens within us. But the problem is, is that cov- coveting is a gateway sin. And it is tipping, always tipping, about ready to fall over into the next sin. So we have David first, just at the beginning, noticing a woman, a beautiful woman. But then after that, he inquires. And then after that, he sends for her. We didn't read it here in this passage, but shortly after that, he has her husband come to him and he spends time with Uriah. And he learns about Uriah and he tries to make it look as if Uriah uh, actually is the one who got his wife pregnant. But that plan doesn't work out. And so it keeps tipping. The sin keeps tipping over. It started with coveting, but soon enough, David makes a, a challenge to Joab and says, when Uriah is up at the front of the battle lines, pull everyone else back so that he's killed. And sure enough, Uriah dies, and David takes Bathsheba home to be his wife. The problem is that coveting actually limits what we see. We may feel coveting and think that we're really we're taking it all in because our desires are stirred up. But the truth is that coveting is actually limiting. I believe that our God is the kind of God who is capable of surprising us and giving us something that we can't even anticipate. There's so many things that God does that are far more creative than what we can imagine. Yet when we are coveting, we actually limit what could come next in our life to what someone else has. And that gets us off the path. That gets us into trouble. And we end up actually neglecting and not developing the things that we already have in our lives because we're so caught up in everything else. And this is why God commands and forbids us to put our focus 
on other people's lives. If there was a a road sign for this commandment, I think it would be a big, huge yellow one, and it would say, keep your eyes on the road that God is walking with you. Because if you're driving in a car and you're really, really concerned about what's coming in front of someone else on a a different highway or a different road, uh, you're in for maybe some bumps. It's not a good thing. So David's got a problem. But our problem is very similar. We also don't know if God can be trusted with the desires that we have. And we have a lot of them. And sometimes we don't know if we dare take those to God and say, God, I feel this. Would you be willing to satisfy this? I'll tell you a story about a a guy named Jim. Jim sat down in his easy chair to read a magazine. He was flipping through the first couple of pages, and he thought he was a pretty healthy guy, but after just maybe 10 pages in, he saw ads for the total gym workout. And he started to kind of question whether or not he was actually as healthy and as fit as what he thought he was. He flipped a few more pages in, and he came across the specs and all the features in the newest BMW, and he began to think about the Mercury Sable that he drove. It was reliable, but it was getting a little bit old, and it it was what he used to get the kids around, and he started to wonder if that was really a car that a man would drive. And towards the back pages, he came across an ad for jewelry, And it spoke about how if you really, really love your spouse, then this is a great way to communicate it. And he had already bought the anniversary gift for his wife, but he started to question whether or not it really would communicate to her his love. And so Jim finished reading the magazine and realized he had one of two choices. He could either spend the next year trying to overhaul his life, or he could stop his subscription to the magazine. It's kind of a cheesy story, but I think it illustrates the fact that we live in a culture where coveting goes on all the time. Apple has sold millions and millions of iPhone 5s, and I think they're great products. But I know that some of that sell, or some of the reason why they sell so many is not just because people have an exact need for that phone, but because it's kind of the, the cool thing to do. It's, it's, it's got a buzz factor to it. And that's because coveting helps push our economy. It, it filters into our advertising. It's there in the grocery line as we're walking up to buy. We see it in all the car commercials that go on. And in some ways, we kind of stoke that. We, we feed that because it's kind of cool to be able to, to have an economy that's boosting and to have business that works. And really, coveting does sell. Another part of coveting is that it motivates us towards success. So, for instance, how often do we not point to some baseball or basketball or sports hero or maybe point to some favorite movie star, or maybe even point to some tycoon, someone in business who's done an exceptionally good job and begin to covet or long for what they have. This is something that we even foster within our children. 
We put up heroes in front of them and we say, that's what it means to really succeed. That's what the good life looks like. And so coveting can be dangerous. It also is that thing which fuels our prideful feelings. So sometimes I like to be the object of desire. Sometimes I like to kind of flaunt what I've got because it feels good to have other people looking and maybe aspiring to what I've got. So in this messy world where we've got not only desires, but we've also got other people with desires, what are we supposed to do to try and figure out what's healthy and what's not? What's good for us and what's dangerous? Two little points. If you desire something or you admire something, and at the end of the day, you're actually still free to let it go. Or even, you're still free to be able to applaud when someone else receives it. I think that that's a step towards health. But if you desire something good and you're willing to cut corners, you don't pursue that thing with integrity. Instead, you are so caught up in the pursuit of it that you don't care what you have to jettison from your life in order to keep going, or who you have to trample over in order to get there. That's when your desire is beginning to, to stink, to kind of be rotten. The great news is, the good news is, that God has an answer for coveting. God gives us the Ten Commandments so that we will actually have our desires channeled towards Him. I read the beginning passage of Exodus 20, and I pointed out that there was two verses before where God says, I am the one that you are to desire, and nothing else. God starts off the commandments structuring it based on Him, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, no other gods besides me. So God is channeling our desires with the Ten Commandments, trying to keep us on a good road towards something that will actually satisfy. And he gives us, in addition to that, a couple other things that are naturally wired inside of us. Philippians 4, verse 6, encourages us to pray, to put our petitions before God, and that when we do that, we do that with thanksgiving. Now, I was going to have Ben Mulder maybe come up here on stage wearing a jersey that said thankfulness. And if you know Ben, he's here in the back. He's a big guy, plays basketball. And I was going to have him do that because thankfulness has this ability to box out. When you're thanking or being thankful for something, it actually takes up space in your life. In the center lane, it actually will clear other things out, make room. So sometimes it's very, very difficult to be angry or frustrated or hateful or covet when thankfulness is there. It actually has the ability to push that out. It doesn't mean that it's not still on the court, but it's not in the lane. And that's what thankfulness can do. Another thing that God has naturally wired within us is generosity. Generosity runs in one direction. It runs away from us towards other people. Coveting, though runs towards ourselves. It's always pooling into us. It's always 
this direction. So when we actually practice generosity, when we decide that we are going to do the difficult thing and we're actually going to give of ourselves and share with somebody else, we're actually flipping the flow. And that has the ability to undermine what coveting is, to undermine those desires, to maybe purify them. And when we do that, our generosity buys for us something that no amount of money could. Have you ever been about ready to give something to someone and then you started thinking, boy, if I give them this $10, that's $10 I could spend on a Chipotle burrito. And you, right? But when we give instead, when we decide that that's something that we can do, we find that we're actually satisfied. Strangely, that desire, though we may not have the burrito, we're satisfied in another way. And that's a beautiful thing that God has given to us. Another way is the idea of celebration. Philippians 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And because the person probably didn't get it the first time, he says, again, I say, rejoice. Now, I'm a single guy. I've been single for quite a few years. And I have attended a ton of my friends' weddings, more than I can count. And I have gone to those weddings with other single friends, and we have sat at tables, and we have watched two people that we love stand up here with rings on their fingers. And there was a part of us that really struggled not to covet, not to want to be up there sharing that type of a ceremony with someone else. And it's hard not to covet in that situation. And yet, when those two people said, I do, we chose to clap. And we chose that when the dance floor got moving, then we got out on there and we celebrated their love. It wasn't our love. It wasn't something that I specifically had myself. But by celebrating something good in someone else's life, by being able to say, yes, that's right, that's good, I'm glad that that's happening. It purifies that desire, gets rid of the rotten parts. And while that desire may still stay, and it's a good desire, something that I think that we should have, it's there in a way that doesn't harm or doesn't seek to take from a neighbor. So that's these three things that God gives us, thankfulness, generosity, and celebrating that undermine what coveting is. But even greater than that, even greater than those three things, and, and maybe even the thing that enables those three to be able to happen, is the fact that God's grace did not stop when, it, when David sinned. God was not pleased by David's action. I believe that 100%. The commandment tells us that coveting is not true. It's not good. It's not something to seek after. And yet... If you were to go to Matthew 1 and you were to look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you would find a name in there. Yes, the name of David is there because Jesus is of the line of David, but you would also find the name Bathsheba. And that is because God's grace will not be stopped even by our broken desire. And so, a long, long time down the line, 
a baby is born in the line of David. And his name is Jesus Christ the Lord. And Philippians 2 is an excellent passage that I would like you to turn to if you have the chance. Philippians 2, I'll be reading a a couple of different verses there. Because I want to show you that Jesus paved a new way toward God. We're going to start with verse 3. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Here we have Jesus Christ, the very nature God, the Son, who does not covet what his Father has. Jesus comes to this world, and he could have lived such an amazing life that everybody would have been coveting him. There's a point on the cross where he could call down 10,000 angels to save him, and yet he does not do it. He doesn't covet what God has, nor does he cause other people to covet him because he actually is coveting the very, very best thing. Jesus was so enamored, not with his father's position, but with his relationship with his father, that he would say, why? Why would I waste my time desiring the kingdoms of earth? Why would I waste my time trying to get the aspirations or the affirmations of all these people when I have a relationship with my Father that is so good? That is what Jesus desired. He walked a path that was very rough. It was brutal. There was violence to it. His desires were something that he at one point in time had to say, not my will, God, but yours be done. And so though his great-great-grandfather David could not control his desire, we can see in Jesus Christ that he is able to be trusted with desire because he will make the right decision with it. Jesus chose to go to the cross because he knew that he could trust his Father with his desire. And that's why this passage doesn't end in the middle with Jesus being humbled, but instead in verse 9 it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our Jesus. That's our God. We don't have to worry that over in another lane, God's going to be lavishing gifts and blessings while we live a barren life. Instead, we can bring our desires, all of them, as they're popping up. We can confess the ugly ones. We can 
pray to him about the ones that still haven't been met. And we can trust that our God is the God who understands that. He gets it. And he also is the God who wants to satisfy it with himself and with his community and in ways that will be good for us. And that is good news. Will you pray with me? God above, it is hard for us to always trust you with our desires. Sometimes we doubt that life in your path will really satisfy, and so we start looking around at our neighbors to have our needs met. Thank you that in Jesus you paved a new road. We pray, God, that you would stir up our desire and our affection for you in such a way that we can't help but run down that path toward you. This is our prayer, God. Amen.